Welcome to the Forest FM podcast, episode 156. I'm Killian Vigna. And I'm Zoe Bilal Springer. This week on the show, we're joined by Millie Kendall MBE, CEO of the British Beauty Council, to discuss ways to best prepare for some of the challenges the industry is currently facing. Clinics and salons are in panic. I had a meeting with a client yesterday who's worried about his his clients all cancelling next week. That might happen, but it might be short-lived. First of all, let's not fear monger. That's really important. I think that longer term, different parts of our industry will be affected in different ways at different times. There are a lot of reputational issues with our industry. So maybe this is a bit of a kick up the arse to the consumer to say, look, when you are going and choosing a salon to go to, it is your job to fundamentally know where you're going, who you're seeing and understanding, you know, are they hygienic? Are they licensed? You know, or um, have they had the right training? For this episode, we wanted to look towards the new decade as we've just come into 2020. We're actually coming near the end of the first quarter of 2020 already, which is quite insane. However, we are currently going through a pandemic at the moment, which is coronavirus, which now adds to this episode. As we all know, companies that succeed through turbulent times are those with strong brand awareness. So we wanted to ask Millie Kendall, who has an abundance of experience in building brands for advice on what challenges are facing the industry currently. And instead of leaving it too long where everyone reacts, how can we start preparing for them in advance so we can be proactive about these challenges? For those who haven't met her or heard her talk at the Salon Owners Summit 2020, just a couple months ago in Dublin, Millie Kendall has been instrumental in the success of cult brands, including Shuumera, Aveda, Tweezerman, L'Occitane, and Ruby and Millie. She launched Ruby and Millie actually in 1998 with her friend and business partner, Ruby Hammer. And it was the first mid-priced makeup brand to cut across existing price and brand perception barriers. She's always been quite disruptive in the industry, innovative. And to this day, the Ruby and Millie concept is still a very unique concept and remains a modern retail growth strategy. In 2007, she was awarded an MBE for her services to the cosmetic industry And if we fast forward 11 years later to 2018, she co-founded the British Beauty Council, a non-profit organization that aims to support a successful, innovative and inclusive British beauty industry. And we're very excited to have her on the show today. As Killian said, it's bound to be a very interesting conversation. So Millie, without further ado, thank you so much for being with us. Well, first of all, at the Salon Owners Summit uh, 2020 earlier this January and also on the show with us today, it's really appreciated. Well, thanks for having me, firstly. Um, that was, it was quite overwhelming. I was quite nervous on stage. There were so many people <laughs> in the audience. I wasn't quite expecting it to be so big. Um, and, and there was one person in the audience that knew me. And um, instead of saying when I came off stage, oh, you did really well. She said, oh, you were very nervous at first. Oh, <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, it was really, it was really interesting. And um, I met loads of amazing people. Yeah, it was amazing. I, I wish I'd actually been there earlier to listen to some of the speakers before me. I love your humbleness there of there was someone in the crowd that recognized me. I'm pretty sure there was uh, one or two others that would have recognized you too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I actually came over on, on the same flight as her. So uh, okay. we kind of had a chat beforehand. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was really, it was very inspiring. And I think there were some great questions afterwards. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Very well organized. It was great. Well, look, listen, for anyone else then that might not know you if they're uh, been living in a cupboard for the last few years, uh, considering we're entering a new decade, could you give us a trip down memory lane and kind of take a look back at what you have, uh, what you think have been some of the biggest trends in the beauty industry for the last few years, considering we're going to focus on kind of what to look out for in the coming decade? Okay, so I've, I'm on my fifth decade, so <laughs> I've had quite a few of them. Um, so... Um, I guess in terms of the future of beauty, um, w- one of the things that's occurred to me is that younger generations want transparency and honesty. And uh, a lot of companies are sort of diverting to that model, but whether they're diverting to it because they think that there's money in it or whether they really want to be truly transparent and honest uh, is slightly questionable to me. So I think that the consu- we, we've become much more um, driven by what the consumer wants. Mm-hmm. 
And so brands are having to um, adapt themselves to that. Um, and I think that that's very important and relevant, whether that be inclusivity, mental health and well-being, so the connection there, whether that be, you know, looking at men's grooming and what men want as opposed to just what, what women want. I think there's a lot of sort of areas that, that are developing at a very fast rate, but a lot of them, in fact, all of them are um, uh, really sort of um, uh, circulating transparency. And I think that's what's very important for the future of beauty. And that's what I've seen in the last few years, the sort of shift to transparency. Um, and um, what I hope is, is that is that the consumer can hold the industry accountable so that the consumer does deliver, if that makes sense. What would that look like for a consumer mass to hold the industry accountable? Well, I mean, I think if you look at sort of social media and how that's developed over the past decade and the sort of um, how Gen Z particularly are driven by social media and how they um, interact with brands and um, services, there really is nowhere for people, brands, people working in our industry to hide anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's and, and, and the brands that are really doing well are the consumer driven brands like Glossier, for example, is a consumer driven brand. It is developed by the consumer for the consumer with the consumer's insights in mind so i think there's a lot of work for brands to do in terms of being transparent what we have to be conscious of is that they don't say hey look at us we're really honest we're clean we're transparent we're this and then and then it's a load of bullshit quite frankly what we have to do is be true to that and because the consumer is very discerning and and they will see through it I mean, even outside of the beauty industry, one of the things I think is brilliant is Yelp. Have you ever complained about something on Yelp? I've never complained, but I have seen a few yet. <laughs> so, so my, this is like a really stupid story because it doesn't relate to the beauty industry, but my daughter took driving lessons and um, she was convinced that the driving instructor was, um, I don't even know how to say this, but anyway, he wasn't sober at the time right? and he was instructing her how to drive. Oh, right. And she failed her first test and then she passed her second. And um, on the second test, she had asked for a second driving instructor because she wasn't confident with the guy that was there before. He was very odd, behaved in a very odd fashion. She took to Yelp and within five minutes, they'd refunded the whole lot, the whole, all the money she spent. Oh, wow. And, and, I, and I think that, that younger people, and she's 22, so younger people are used to standing up for themselves. In Britain particularly, we are not really a society of, uh, we don't complain enough. So <laughs> we sort of tend to get walked over, you know. Yeah, um, I could relate to that with Canadians. I mean, I wouldn't do that. You know, I wouldn't do that. I've had some of the, I've, I've had unfortunately some really awful facials, for example. And afterwards I've come out and I thought, oh, I can't complain because I don't want to upset anyone, mm. you know. Yeah. But actually, I think younger people are much more, um, prone to do that and I think that that means that you know we have to be we have to step it up we have to pull our socks up we have to um you know our reputation is is important our reputation is at stake because we're exposed on a multitude of different platforms so you know transparency is is paramount really I suppose you've got pretty much every blogger or vlogger out there today wanting to talk about your product so you can't really hide from anything you, you, your company is exposed if that's the area you're going into with that kind of in mind does that mean that companies especially in the beauty industry wouldn't always have been customer focused is this only a recent thing because it's easier to get called out um i think yes i think that i mean i had a brand in the 90s and everything about it was transparent even down to the packaging and sort of who we were and how we sold the product and what we said about it and at that time, that was quite revolutionary because a lot of brands were sort of developed by marketing men sitting in rooms, then creating things and then sending it off to market research to have a bunch of women test them. So it was sort of backwards, really, in a way. Product um, first, nearly. Yeah, exactly. So it was like sort of, you know, uh, and and also um, in, in true transparency, the beauty industry oftentimes trades on negativity. So you're too fat, you're too thin, your hair's too curly, you're too dark, you're too white. You're too, you know, we, we've been used to that. So what those marketing boards have done is they've looked at sort of, you know, where there are problems and they've tried, they've tried to find solutions. And actually, they don't look at the celebratory kind of community aspects of beauty, but social media is 
sort of added that now into the mix. And I mean, I, I think for me, I've had a, it's been a learning curve the past 10 years because when I launched brands before, there was no social media. And so all press was good press because anything drove sales. So if you send a load of products off to the Sun or the Daily Mail and they do a review and your product is gets a two out of 10, at least you got the coverage, your product was photographed. So we didn't need to think of it like that. It wasn't, um, but then we didn't really have the reach that you have now. So whilst we felt sort of safer, we didn't really have the exposure. So we didn't have the volume of sales that you can have now. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, th I think the beauty industry in general, so I run the British Beauty Council and, and that one of our pillars, one of our main pillars is reputation. And um, I think if you start to look at all of the challenges facing the industry, um, when you start to sort of delve deeper, they, in a way, um, sort of um, are reputational based. So, for example, makeup and the use of makeup on Instagram um, could be thought of as causing us a slight reputational issue because it's seen as shallow and vacuous and not something people need and you know, young girls wanting to change how they look um, and filters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you start to sort of delve into it, um, the beauty industry and how some people um, experience social media can be a very positive thing. So um, I think in terms of reputation, I think you kind of have to take the bad with the good. I think there will always be a mix of good and bad. Yeah. Um, I think it's how you deal with it. Um, with with social media, it's, it's become completely different. You know, when if somebody didn't like something I did previously, um, I would deal with them offline in a real setting and talk to them about what it was they didn't like and come to some sort of agreement or arrangement. Nowadays, you know, if that person complains, there are thousands of other people that, you know, see it. So it is really difficult, I think. Um, I would say uh, speed is of, of, of most importance. So, you know, you must um, uh, deal with things in, in a very speedy manner. Um, and I think just be very confident that whatever you're doing, as long as you do it well to the best of your ability, sometimes... Uh, an attack on your reputation is somebody's opinion, really. And it's not always about you. You know, it can also be that people have distorted opinion, you know. But you also, like, anything could have happened on that particular day as well to just, I suppose, switch a trigger and all of a sudden you're in the crossfires for them. Yeah, and I think that, the you know, the trick is obviously to sort of minimise the impact of, of that sort of situation, but to recognise that. I mean, I often say to my daughter when she says, oh, I don't like my science teacher. And I'm like, you know, she might, she might just be having a bad day. She might have had an argument with her boyfriend. You know, you just don't know what's going on in other people's lives. You think you do because we're all sort of so visible, but you just don't know. I think you, there needs to be a level of tolerance, I think, with a lot of things. But, you know, having said that, it's... Um, I think you're more vulnerable if you're overexposed. I think that's that's really important. I think I do look at a lot of my friends who are sort of opinion formers or influencers online, and I don't envy the amount of content they have to produce, the amount of um, cyberbullying they have to endure. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And these people have either been, you know, reputable and are reputable estheticians or amazing journalists or... You know, they come from many walks of life. My business partner was once uh, attacked on, on social media for nothing at all. And she was a beauty director of British Vogue. She's the most amazing woman I've ever met. And she's a fantastic journalist, but she has an opinion. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, with greater exposure, you are, um, there is, you know, greater attack, I guess. So you've just kind of, covered how to protect your brand from, I suppose, attacks or negativity online or out there. But considering you self-confess that you have been around for about five decades, I'm sure you've seen an economic downturn or two. And when we were actually writing this question, we were going to ask with the intention of how do you protect your brand when businesses slow down due to economic downturns and that. But now with the current coronavirus taking place, there's a lot of fear out there for salons that the footfall just isn't going to be there. Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It's really, it's a really, it's challenging times. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, I I think that, um, I mean, yes, I've seen a number of economic downturns from, you know, from the 80s on. And generally, it's sort of every decade, there's something, there's some challenge. But in the UK, the salon industry is the most buoyant and largest contributor to the beauty economy. It's huge. And I do think that we have to have some, um, there is some security in knowing that people still want certain amount of treatment. I mean, I actually think that the um, the cosmetics industry will be affected more in a way. Uh, you know, they're, they're, okay, there is a call right now in an immediate sense where, you know, clinics and salons are in panic. I had a meeting with a client yesterday who's worried about his, his clients all cancelling next week. That might happen, but it might be short-lived. I think that longer term something like this will have more of a, an effect on on makeup, cosmetic sales, because I still think we're going to want our hair coloured, dyed, cut. Yeah. I, I went for a bikini wax the other day. You know, I, I'm not in an environment like a gym. I'm not in a sort of, you know, there's no, not that many people. It's me and her in a room. I think in the short term it will affect salons, there's no doubt. Um, but I think long term, I think if you had a choice of spending money, you would rather go and have a service that you have on a consistent basis as opposed to going and buying the latest compact or palette, if that makes sense. And so I think that there will, different parts of our industry will be affected in different ways at different times. I think, first of all, let's not fear monger. That's really important. Let's keep our environments clean. I think it's a real call to action for salons to be very conscious about cleanliness. I mean, I, I run a PR agency and um, I was just, everyone clean your keyboard. <laughs> you know, like, it's all very well, you keep washing your hands, but your keyboard is filthy. So, you know, let's get the dettol out and wash those as well. Yeah. Um, so I think that, um, I think hygiene is incredibly important. We've just published on the British Beauty Council's website just some, some tips for um, salons, both um, using some of the, um, the um, advice from our affiliates, so National Hairdressing Federation, BabTAC, uh, CTPA, on sort of best practices. Um, I think in a lot of ways, and I was thinking this yesterday, I used to be a hairdressing assistant, and um, I my hands were always in water. We might find that the only people to survive are hairdressing assistants. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'll have the cleanest bloody hands of anyone ever. Um, and, I, and I just, I feel like our industry, particularly the services industry, is very sort of hygiene-led. It's a real, you know. It always I mean, has been, really, yeah. You go, there's my bikini wax, my gloves, <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, we are very hygiene-led. So actually, I'm very optimistic anyway as a person, um, but um, this is obviously scaring everyone. So um, just in, you know, in to be sort of candid, you know, there is some concern about sort of financial impact long term. Um, but I'm really hoping that this can be squeezed into a shorter term. As like an industry, even even in like the worst times, there's always opportunities somewhere, right? Like, is there something that you could see even off the top of your head that we could disrupt and turn to the industry's advantage? Well, I mean, I do think that's the, the hygiene aspect, you know. I think there's a sort of, yeah. um, I think we need to promote the hygiene in our salons because I think that's very important. Yeah. So maybe that is something that we need to talk about. And, you know, there are a lot of, reputational issues with our industry where there are people you know injecting fillers that aren't trained or licensed and they're doing it in the front rooms and all that kind of stuff and so maybe what this will do in a in a in a way is and, and we've talked a lot about do we license people how do you regulate this you know and and the problem will always be there'll always be people doing slightly dodgy things that will cause and will have a knock-on effect to our reputation in a negative way and so no matter how many people are doing it well, there'll always be people that aren't. And so maybe this will, uh, so, so what from, from those discussions, and I've had a lot of those discussions with various industry bodies, we all come together on a regular basis to discuss aesthetics and treatments and stuff and how we can raise the reputation of our industry. Um, 
one of the things that really concerns me and that I, I always go to, my go-to sort of take on this is the consumer doesn't know these people aren't licensed and these people aren't qualified to do this. So maybe this is a bit of a kick up the arse to the consumer to say, look, when you are going and choosing a salon to go to, it is your job to fundamentally know where you're going, who you're seeing and understanding, you know, are they hygienic? Are they licensed? You know, or um, have they had the right training? And so perhaps the consumer will now take a second look at where they're going and what that environment is like. I mean, we've talked to, um, there's um, an organization that looks at health and safety. It's like a division of the EPA that is dedicated to uh, health and safety in salons. So, you know, it, it's a real opportunity for us to promote those ones that are doing good. You know, I do, I do think that predominantly we are a force for good. We are a, a, a good, kind industry that does look after our consumers, our, our clients. But there will always be rogues out there that don't really comply. And hopefully this will reduce their impact and their voice. Like, surely this would be a good time now for salons to be offering educational so like the first part where you said you've probably got some untrained or unlicensed people out there it's probably a good idea for salons to start promoting that they are fully qualified they're passing their health inspections yeah there's a real do you know what's really interesting because i think in ireland patch testing is the law isn't it yeah it's requiring salons which it isn't in the uk you know that for example that is a really important piece of of, I mean, it's not legislature here. You don't have to do it, but you should. Yeah. yeah. You know, you should do it. Um, I would like to, every time I see, I sit down in a chair, I don't want to sit in a chair with hair on it. <laughs> I don't want to have, a, a, you know, a counter in front of me where I put my things that, are, that aren't clean before. You know, I mean, it's just basic fundamental things, isn't it? That, um, that I think it will, this will, I think this will really be a call to action for salons to sort of take a look at how they're educating their staff. Yeah, I agree. That It's probably a good time, like, if you are struggling with the quietness and the footfall, to maybe start thinking long-term strategies then. Surely you could start working on how can you build or protect your brand? Because as we know, the companies that tend to succeed through recessions and stuff like that, are the ones with big brands that people believe in or buy into. Yeah, there's, um, you know, I mean, I just, I'm using Tony and Guy just because I worked there when I was a kid. I did a youth training scheme in the salon. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I, I, that brand is such a big brand is you know what you're going to get. Yeah. You just know what you're going to get when you go there. Um, and, um, and so those brands don't become big by accident. They become big because people trust in what they have to offer and what they have to deliver. Um, I think it's really interesting about the online tutorials. I did a talk recently at Solent University down in Southampton. And, um, I did a talk with a woman called uh, Denise Baden, Dr. Denise Baden. And one of the things she was saying was, is that in terms of our environmental impact as an industry, uh, the biggest in the biggest contributor to your carbon footprint is is um, washing your hair. Yeah, we actually had her on the show when we were talking about this. She's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, she was amazing, <laughs> and she was talking about the use of dry shampoo. Well, I don't wash my hair very often, but that's because I'm sort of in my fifties and my hair's feeling a bit dry because you know you go through the menopause, unfortunately, and your hair gets a bit dry. Everything gets a bit dry, and um, and I just thought. I don't wash my hair that often because it doesn't suit my hair. I don't, um, and I do use dry shampoo in between shampoos. And I thought, you know, maybe that's something that salons could look at, you know, offering those sort of breaks between shampoo, both for upkeep and care at home, Mm -hmm. but looking at dry shampoo as something that you should be promoting to your customers, your clients, as a way to sort of um, give them some at-home advice. Obviously, tutorials are really important. I mean, look at the sort of, you know, the scope of YouTube and how popular that is. And, um, you know, my 13-year-old daughter is is constantly coming into my bedroom and doing things with a straightening iron. I just didn't even know you existed. I didn't know you could do things like that with an iron, you know. I mean, she can make... She's probably learned that off another yeah, she kid. Can, she can literally make her hair curly with a straightening iron. I've never been able to do that. Um, so, you know, it's. I think those kind of things are really important. I think there's sort of some at-home care, and I think that builds loyalty, drives people back into the business. Do you think we're going to see 
maybe a, a bit more people moving into the education side of the industry because you don't necessarily need clients to be physically coming to you? Well, I looked at I looked at a brand many, uh, not many years ago, about seven years ago, which I thought was really clever. And there were a brand that was actually being developed in Australia and it never came to market. And the idea was, is that you would get these sort of, um, you would get a look and within it, there was like a sort of um, template that you would put on your mirror and it would show you how to hold your hair to cut it. Hmm. I thought it was quite clever. I felt a little bit not safe, maybe, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the idea was quite interesting. But I think what will happen is, is I think that if there is a sort of downturn, it will be less regular visits, but possibly more um, more value per customer as when they come in. So, for example, I might wait to have my hair colored a little bit, but when I go in, I might have my hair cut and then not come back for four months. So maybe on a yearly basis, it won't have as much impact, maybe a small amount, but not as much. But on a sort of regular turnover, um, it might do. Um, so I think you might see less regularity, but you might see higher ticket sales. So salon owners who have businesses where they've had staff that have usually worked five days a week are seeing some of those staff reduce the amount of days they're in the salon. And maybe those people are working from home a little bit as well. I think that the, um, I think the format of the salon is changing. That is a given. And that's not just to do with um, economic downturn due to coronavirus or anything like that. We are definitely changing as an industry. We need to embrace freelancers and gig workers. We need to figure out how we're going to manage that part of our business. We need to look at booking systems and um, accounting practices for those people because if they are working two days in the office and one or two days at home, how is that working legally quite frankly you know and then you know how are we supporting them in their sort of freelance work I mean I, I, I own a PR agency and I can tell you that a lot of my staff are now freelance they work on a part-time basis um, and they invoice me as opposed to on being on my payroll it's just a completely different you know I guess the tech community has sort of hijacked lots of other communities and turned a lot of us into gig workers so and, and our industry is going to change. And so we have to look at how we adapt um, as opposed to constantly trying to fight it. Um, you know, hair salons are maybe turning into hair and beauty salons. You know, they're combining services within, you know, one premises. So I, I, there's a lot of changes. There, there are a lot of changes. And I, and I think we have to know what they are, recognize what they are and not, turn a blind eye to them or go, oh my God, this is awful, you know, and get stroppy about it. You know, my staff are only working part-time for me uh, and taking my clients elsewhere. We have to look at what that is and figure out how to future-proof our industry uh, and not condemn everybody for a change in circumstance because there's a lot of work to be done, but, but it's inevitable. So where, where do we start to even, you know, tackle these challenges? If, if we take, for example, your work with the British Beauty Council, you managed to put a definition on what is uh, considered beauty, uh, which wasn't, there was no definition for it um, a couple of years back. So where do you even start with these challenges that seem so huge? I think I think the first thing is to say that it's it took us um, and I wasn't doing this full time before, but it, we had to do a landscape assessment. So we started by looking at the challenges that face the industry, um, and that was through doing talks and you know I have a lot of friends in the business. So you look at the challenges facing the industry, and then you put together a landscape assessment, and then we took that uh, to think tanks. So we organised think tanks with patrons and advisory board members and people that we knew in the industry and affiliate bodies. And we allowed them all to sort of have their say, uh, so that we had a variety of views. So there were probably about 90 people in the room split up into all different groups. It was, we had facilitators and note takers and we videoed the whole thing. And, and we, so we, we did these think tanks so that we could then look at what the next steps were. And we then took all of the challenges and we divided it up into three pillars. So reputation, which obviously we're talking about today, which is critical. Mm -hmm. Education, which is, again, what we're talking about today, which is increasingly critical. And innovation, what we can do to make changes. And within reputation, education and innovation, we have a list of roadmap activities that we're going to do that, you know, we'll undertake this year. And 
I doubt very much I will accomplish them all this year. I'd like to say I will, but, you know, there's quite challenging times because now I think we're going to have a few months of sort of sitting on our hands, not knowing where to go next. Um, but, um, you know, we endeavor to then um, challenge ourselves to to work on these, you know, they're baby steps. So they're little steps. So, so for example, diversity and inclusion is a topic that keeps being raised. So we did a think tank in November. I've been looking today at the report that we're doing. So it's a piece of research, a sort of white paper on what that means to the beauty industry. And then we publish that. And then we look at what challenges, what, what, so we look at what the challenges are and then what we can do to move forward as an industry and be more inclusive. And does that mean, like uh, I talked, we talked a lot in that piece of research about intersectionality and, you know, it's all very well. It's This isn't about race or ethnicity. This is about disability. It's about age. It's about gender. It's about, um, you know, I can be, I, I'm a multi, uh, my, my family comes from all over the world. I don't see myself as any one thing at any given time. I think a lot of us don't. And so I think we have to look at you know, if if you go off and do your DNA test with 23andMe or whatever it is, <laughs> generally speaking, you don't come back as one thing, you know, none of us do, very rarely. Um, so, you know, we are all multifaceted and, and a, a big mix. And so, um, so, you know, that was sort of our take and, and, and how there was a lot of talk about how inclusivity was about community and self-love and you know so it really took a kind of like really interesting direction but with all of this you have to do the landscape assessment you have to ask the difficult questions so what we do as an organization is we ask those difficult questions in order to be able to have um really good insight into where to take it next and lots of people don't want to ask those questions because they don't really want to expose themselves so yeah, or don't want to hear the answers, the reality of it. Yeah, and, and you know, it's that whole thing with the salons and the freelancers. I didn't realize that that was an issue. Now, my dad's a hairdresser and he has salons in LA and he has, a lot of his staff is self-employed and they have been for a long time. So he sort of essentially rents chairs. And so that's a very American thing that I'm quite aware of because I grew up in an environment that was like that. Up until recently, that wasn't really a thing here. And it's becoming much more popular. And, and I, I did a talk from a, a hair brand, a color brand, and there were a lot of salon owners um, that were really struggling with faced with this sort of dynamic. How does it work? What do we do? How do we go forward? And it doesn't work for them. And, and I thought, well, my dad, had, as far as I remember, he'd always had these freelancers working for him. And I thought, I've never thought to ask him how he transitioned from you know, having everyone on payroll to it being completely different. And and I think that there are sort of challenges, but people have done it. And so I think that we have to be honest and talk about what the challenges are. That's really important. So do you think that uh, moving more towards the gig economy or boot renting is actually a positive for the industry or it's just inevitable, essentially? It doesn't feel like it's a positive at the moment, but, you know, who, who, you, uh, listen, I run payroll for about 20 people. I'll tell you, I don't sleep for one, at least two days every <laughs> month. So the fact that people are working freelance for me seems like it'd be a bonus. Um, I, um, I think that um, there are challenges on both sides, aren't there? Because, you know, there's a lot of talk now about self-employed people not having the maternity rights that, you know, employed people have. So I think, if you are a salon owner and you think, oh, my God, everyone's going freelance and it's awful, A, I think it's going to be inevitable. So get with the program, deal with it, figure out how you're going to run your business accordingly. And B, don't think that those people that are going freelance aren't going to be taking a risk as well. You know, they're going to have to pay taxes in a way they've never paid before. They're going to have to hire accountants. They're going to have to run all their expenses differently. They are, when they're sick, they don't work. They don't get, you know, there's, there's little help for them. There's, you know that's a risk that they're taking as well. So, you know, I think that there are risks on both sides. It's not just one-sided. But I do think it's inevitable, unfortunately. I do think it is inevitable, which is why we need to talk about it now, embrace it and figure out a way that works for both parties. So instead of being reactive and waiting too long, we need to start thinking about it now and being proactive because you don't yeah, know when it's yeah. going to take over. Yeah, exactly. And it might be something that, 
you know, your salon community can come together and maybe create some sort of committee to sort of discuss it and support the rest of them, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I'm all for subcommittees, you know. If you run yourself like government, you have a subcommittee that is dedicated to looking at how that affects the businesses within your community and maybe come up with solutions that then can be shared amongst the community so people aren't in fear, aren't worried, and people don't go rogue. Because, again, it's our responsibility to work with our community and our industry and to help future-proof it. Absolutely. So are you still in the research phase of this or are you working with salons to start implementing these actions? No, I'm totally in the research phase of life. (laughs) I mean, in fairness, that's not part of my roadmap uh, this year. That's not part of my roadmap at all. I I welcome anyone that wants to take that on and kind of, you know, open the conversation and talk about it. I will support with information that I've received and maybe my opinion as much as possible. Um, But it's not part of my remit because there are a lot of organisations that represent the hairdressing and beauty community. So, Whilst it's something that I've noticed and it's something that's coming to my attention, it's still very early days. Um, and so I think there does need to be a sort of broader landscape assessment by the hairdressing and beauty communities within salons um, to sort of further define what the challenges are. Because I'm talking very top level. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I am not the organisation that represents those individuals on the level of insuring them and like, you know, all that kind of it's not That's not my remit really. Yeah. Well, you strike me as a very, very positive person, uh, generally speaking. Is there anything, any of those challenges that to you kind of worry you more that are maybe on your roadmap right now? No. No? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are a positive person. No, because I I don't, no, no, because... Yeah, no, because I think that, okay, we have a climate crisis. So, you know, the big ones are... um, the big ones, and so just to go back to that gig worker thing, one of the when we we're doing British Beauty Week in September, God willing, um, <laughs> and um, I'm not really a God person, but you know, I've done anything at the moment to help a little bit. Um, but um, um, so one of the one of the topics, for example, for panel talks and think tanks will be around that gig worker piece because I do think there needs to be more investigation into it. Um, but the big topics are now sort of mental health and well being, diversity and inclusion. Um, and the environment. And so we are um, fundraising right now to produce a sustainability report. Um, so, so because I think where we're being attacked as an industry for use of plastics and for waste, um, we need to really go to somebody outside of our industry to come in and have a look at our industry and give us an unbiased piece of research on what it is that we're facing because I'm a firm believer in if you don't know what it is, you can't fix it, like the definition. And there are a lot of brand, um, there's a lot of brand doctrine at the moment. So brands are saying what they think people want to hear. So if they are a glass company, they're saying plastics are terrible. If they're paper, they're saying, you know, glass is terrible. So um, everyone's saying something and and actually we're being attacked for a very small portion or not a small, but a a portion of our industry that if you look at the plastic problem and packaging, um, you know, it's a lot of the onus is on the consumer to recycle, but most of the consumers don't know when you take apart a a, a plastic bottle, the different plastics that are used. So the tube that pumps a product up into the actuator or the pump is probably different plastic to the pump itself. And then there's a ferrule, which might be electroplated metal or metallized plastic. What do you do with that? And the bottle is completely different. And then in the UK, every single borough council has a different recycling model. So, and, you know, beauty products that are generally quite small are non-recyclable anyway because they fall through the machinery so you know there's lots of challenges there so maybe the challenge is hey let's make our products bigger so that we don't have to buy them so often there isn't as much waste and when we do recycle them they are like gallon sizes that you buy in salons i don't know maybe that's the solution i would like it i have a family with a lot of hair it would help me out tremendously (laughs) we can go through a 250 ml bottle of shampoo and you know a week and a half. So maybe that's a solution. But until you kind of get to the sort of, until you do a deep dive, you don't really know. Um, yeah. But I do feel like if you know what the problem is and you truly understand it, you can find a solution for most things. So, you know, um, 
filters on Instagram, the use of makeup on young people, you know, how we represent ourselves. Well, flip it. Look at the people that are that have come from terrible situations with, with, with mental health challenges that are using social media to drive change. You know, we work with haircuts for homeless. They cut the hair for homeless people. Their entire community is driven online by social media. Um, and they do amazing things for people that haven't been touched in years, you know, just to put a hand on someone's shoulder, you know. There's, a, there's a, an amazing organization called Skin, and they do online tutorials teaching beauty therapists and hairdressers how to spot the signs of skin cancer on people. Oh, wow, that's powerful, yeah. Really powerful. So you can go on, you sign up. It's not expensive. I don't know how much it is, but I don't, I, I'm pretty sure it's not that expensive. It's a charity. And you get this tutorial so you know what you're looking for. And with all that, that close proximity to people, you probably see people more than their, than their doctors do. Yeah. You know, send them to the doctor on a more regular basis. Early detection is everything, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, I do think that there are amazing things happening in, in that sort of well-being sphere. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that we have, there are some challenges. Aesthetics to me is a big one. Uh, but that's changing, I think, hopefully. So if we were just to focus then on kind of products, and the reason I'm asking is because you've already said that it's important to start looking at future-proofing yourself. Um, people want us to be more transparent and then be more aware about the climate. So in that, I kind of want to ask, are people going to expect your products then to be more natural? So we're seeing a lot of around kind of vegan friendly products and um, marijuana products. Do you think these are just a trend or do you think these will be key in future proofing your salon or your products, whatever it is? Um, so so the, the big thing to note about that is that um, there is no real definition. You can have like 1% organic ingredients or natural ingredients and call your product natural and organic. So again, we've not been transparent. And then there are organizations like Soil Association, EcoCert, which are great organizations, but then there is obviously a gate fee to get those certifications. And some of the smaller brands simply can't afford them. And a majority of the brands in the UK are small and medium enterprises. So in order to be able to say, hey, look, I've got the appropriate certification, you have to pay for it. It's not always terribly expensive, but you still have to pay for it. And so I think that, yes, again, this is very consumer-driven. People do want that. They do want more natural, but they also do want more transparency. Um, so the more that's talked about, the more uh, we realize how um, slightly worrying <laughs> that this sector is because there is a lack of transparency and a lack of efficacy in a lot of things. Um, oh, I get sent stuff all the time. They say, oh, it's really 100% natural. Rubbish, you know. Um, are preservatives bad? If you've got water in a product, you have to put preservatives in it. You, those preservatives are parabens. There's nothing wrong with parabens. Um, do you want sulfates in shampoo? Well, you know, people are used to... Um, uh, foaming. So it's a real learning curve for people to go to non-sulfate products. Um, are we all going to be using shampoo bars in the future? Because that's a more natural environmental way of using them. I find those really difficult to use. Uh, somebody's just turned me on to a powder that you use, which is obviously uh, less costly to transport. So less environmental impact. It's lighter, no water, no preservatives. Uh, so much more natural in its composition and I can add as much water as I want and then it foams. There, you know, there are lots of sort of um, different innovations um, in beauty, but be very conscious that don't believe everything you read. That's the first thing I would say. CBD, um, I think that the amount that is in beauty products at the, amount, at, at, at the moment, the amount that's allowed is just not enough to do anything. So there's a sort of slight placebo effect in a lot of what is available on the market. Uh, I've been talking to a friend of mine in the US about um, the legalization um, piece, but obviously we started talking just before Brexit and then when Brexit happened and Donald Trump was elected and, you know, it sort of, it was not going to be on the top of the list for government. So who knows when that's all going to really kick off properly. Um, I'm a firm believer in, in the use of CBD, but it has to be at a percentage of, you know, it's like when you go 
to um, uh, buy vitamins. Sometimes the sort of milligrams, um, it's so low, it's not really going to do anything. You have to really find the right amount of gear in the product in order for it to have the impact. The one a day and you're taking the five of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there is... Somebody once said when I started menopause, I think it was go, go buy some B12 or something, but they told me the brand that had the highest milligrams so that it actually had some effect because otherwise it's useless, it's pointless. Um, you know, really, you have to really read the label, you know, to know what's in something. Um, there are, I think there's sort of what's, I think it's 2.5% of 5% is currently okay. Is that enough? I don't know. Um, but I do believe there are some inflammatory benefits and I take it. <laughs> it's not going to hurt you, put it that way. Mm. Um, um, and, and also I would say with CBD, uh, yes, maybe it's a trend ingredient. Um, every journalist I speak to says they must get, you know, 15 CBD emails a day. But let's look at the real benefits of CBD. The, the, the way it's grown, hemp essentially, you know, marijuana hemp, it's a renewable resource. So it's an environmentally friendly plant. It's something that literally grows like weed so <laughs> no pun intended very, yeah, no pun intended so but so it's very um so i think it's very beneficial environmentally and, and so i think that's something that we need to recognize that plant hemp has been used you know you can build bloody houses with it you know you can wear it there is so much um benefit from the you know the properties of the plant itself but there's a long way to go um, particularly in beauty brands i think yeah. Well, listen, Millie, this has been absolutely fantastic. If anyone wants to get involved in the conversations or, you know, support the British Beauty Council, how can they get in touch? How can they do that? Yeah. So for now, at the moment, membership is free. So we're only sort of a year, a little over a year old. So we have a free membership. You can sign up for free. Um, but that will change. And so I would urge you to sign up now. Um, <laughs> before there's a small subscription, it'll never be huge. But um, yeah, you should just sign up on our website, britishbeautycouncil.com, and there'll be a link to membership. Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey guys, Zoe. And Killian here. There's a lot going on in the world right now, and things are changing fast. This is a short reminder for you to stay safe and on top of all the latest and factual news. Your starting point should be your governing health services website. To help you navigate this crisis, Forest Salon Software has also a variety of business resources available. Check out our Help Juice page, the Forest Academy Learning Portal, the Coronavirus Best Practice page at forest.com forward slash C19, the Forest Blog and Podcast, and our multiple on-demand webinar recordings at forest.com forward slash resources. And one last thing. Don't, don't be scared, scared be, be prepared. prepared. So that was Millie Kendall, MBE, with some really good takeaways there. Um, just to list a, a small few, we had transparency is key. Absolutely. I mean, like in today's environment, there's just no hiding from consumers at all. They will call you out if needs be. Another one was education, which I actually found very interesting is the move towards education, whether you're educating your clients or whether you're educating people that want to get into the industry. That's definitely key and it's starting to move more and more online through the use of academies, online academies. What else did we have? We had talking about future-proofing yourself, um, diversity, inclusivity, and... Sustainability. Exactly, Zoe. Yeah, so quite a few takeaways there. And I just hope people can take that. Oh, and the gig economy as well, of course, um, where Millie sees it is essentially inevitably moving towards that direction, whether it's a positive or negative on the industry, that's still yet to be seen. Yeah, it's just a matter of how do we how do we make it work as an industry? Absolutely. Don't leave it too late. Be proactive. What can we do now to prepare? I wish we'd known that a couple of months prior to coronavirus, but unfortunately that is just how things happen. They do spring upon you. So start creating your preparation plans now. 
And on that note, we're moving to the Inside Forest segment. So we have been seeing a lot of concerns around COVID-19 and the impact that this will have on businesses. There's no denying it is a pandemic. However, we do urge people to remain as calm as possible. And at Forest here, we're currently creating webinars to help your salon deal with the outbreak. So essentially not to be scared, how to be prepared. And we're going to have materials publicly available online for everyone. And we're going to have client-only webinars too. So keep an eye on our podcasts, our blogs, and your emails to see when those webinars will be going live and how to attend. If you do have any queries with regards to accessing resources around coronavirus and how to prepare your salon, you can always email us at training and we'll be in touch. We also have three webinars that you can watch on demand for free at forest.com forward slash resources. All three of these webinars will help you navigate these uncertain times and this current situation. Uh, the first one being Salon HR Advice for Managing COVID-19 with HR Specialist Caroline McInery as she looks into uh, HR game plans for Salon dealing with the current crisis. The second one is Gain New Clients from Social Media hosted by Angela Anderson and she'll be discussing the four steps to gain new clients, uh, specifically from Instagram. Last but not least, we also have a replay webinar uh, from Jay Williams, and this one is titled, There is no failure, only feedback. In this hour-long session, Jay discusses how you can make people like you better, be more interested in what you have to say, and uh, want to tell you everything that you want to know about how they feel about you and your performance. Again, all three of these webinars are available to watch for free on demand at whatever time suits you best. If, however, you'd like to uh, join a live webinar, we have one coming up on Wednesday, March 25th at 1pm EST, and it's hosted by Nina Tulio, who's an industry-leading salon business consultant consultant, speaker, and educator at 1N Agency. Her webinar is titled Facts Versus Fear, Make the Best Decision for Your Business. Uh, the premise for this one, very simple, understanding the difference between fear-based decisions and factual decisions and how analyzing this can ultimately help you be best prepared for the future. To watch any of these webinars or to sign up to the live one that we have coming up, you can find the links in today's episode's show notes. And we also have a coronavirus best practice page available as well for you uh, that goes through, you know, what COVID-19 is, what effects it could have on salons and spas, staff, client and business health and well-being and what to do while your salon is closed uh, because we are hearing more and more salons uh, having to close due to government instructions. And we highly recommend following us on social media and specifically on Instagram where we have regional accounts. So we'll be keeping you updated um, as to what's going on, what we're releasing specific to your region. So if you haven't yet followed us there, the handles are for Australia at forest.au, for North America at forest.northamerica and for Ireland and the UK at forest.ukie. If you have any questions at all, don't hesitate to get in touch. We're here to support you through this time. And if you have anything that you'd like for us to cover on Forest FM in the coming weeks, do let us know. Drop us a message at forestfm at forest.com. Or you can leave us a review or a comment on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we're always looking for ways to improve the show and make sure that we deliver the best and most relevant content to you in these specific times. Otherwise, stay safe and we'll catch you next Monday. All the best. This episode was edited and mixed by Audio Z. Great music makes great moments. Montreal's cutting-edge post-production studio for creative minds looking to have their vision professionally produced and mixed. Forest FM, the Salon Owners podcast, is brought to you by Forest Salon Software. We help salon owners get their clients back in more often, spending more, and generating referrals. Let's grow.